Area 51 is where the government hides extraterrestrial life. <laughs> NASA staged the moon landing at a Hollywood movie studio. Elvis Presley is still alive. <laughs> These are all the famous conspiracy theories that are out there, and there are many more. And many people believe that they're actually true. And it seems like National Enquirer catches Elvis at a shopping mall nearly every week. <laughs> Most people are so familiar with conspiracy theories that they've forgotten what actual conspiracies really are. So a quick defini dictionary definition may jolt our memory. A conspiracy is a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful. A secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful. So you look at the pages of history, and you don't have to search too long to find conspiracies that are more than just supposed events, but cons conspiracies that actually happened, real conspiracies. Perhaps one of the most famous actual conspiracies in history culminated on the Ides of March, that is March 15th, 44 BC, in the city of Pompeii. This was the secret plan, the conspiracy, to assassinate Julius Caesar. And if you don't know the background of the assassination of Julius Caesar, these are some of the big building blocks of the story. The group who formed this plan, who the conspirators of this group, was a group of Roman senators who dubbed themselves the Liberators. If I ever started a band, I may be tempted to call it the Liberators. Among the leaders of the Liberators was Brutus, a senator with a close relationship to Julius Caesar himself. Now, the Liberators' conspiracy was birthed out of a growing tension between the Roman Senate and Caesar. At this point in Rome's history, Rome was still a republic. That means the Senate still had final formal power. But it was quickly fading. Caesar strove to gain more and more power, and he didn't want his power and his authority to depend in any way on the Roman Senate. So what's to be done about this tension? The liberators conspired to do something about their greedy, power-hungry leader. They decided that the best plan would be to take him out when he was alone with them in a Senate meeting. The Ides of March was going to be the fateful day where they would hide their daggers in their togas and kill Julius Caesar. Now their secret plan, their conspiracy was almost foiled. There were murmurs that something was going to happen. And Caesar even, even felt sick before the Ides of March, before the Senate meeting, and he was about not to go. But it was his friend Brutus it was his friend Brutus who convinced, who persuaded Caesar to attend the Senate meeting. Basically tell him, you need to man up and go. And Caesar went. So the liberators overcame all the obstacles that stood in the way of their conspiracy. After attending a gladiator game, Caesar arrived at the Senate where one senator handed him a petition and then grabbed Caesar's garment and swung a knife at his neck. But Caesar stopped and grabbed his arm. 
It's just, what is this violence? But before long, a group of over 60 senators stormed upon Caesar, leaving him with 23 wounds. As Caesar's taking his final breaths, he sees that Brutus, his friend, is among this group. And reportedly, uttered his famous last words. Et tu, Brute? You too, Brutus? The Liberator's conspiracy was clear-eyed, full-fledged rebellion. It was rebellion that they believe would lead to their freedom. Hence the name, Liberators. In fact, as soon as the act was over, they paraded out into the streets of the city, proclaiming, people of Rome, we are once again free. But the promises of their rebellion failed to come true. Instead of preserving the republic, the Ides of March was the day the republic was lost. It was the day that the Senate lost their power. And the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire. Octavian, the grandnephew of Caesar, would eventually take the throne and become Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor. So today, we come to another clear-eyed, full-fledged, failed rebellion. The conspirators, like the liberators, believed that the dethroning of their ruler would bring about greater freedom than they had ever enjoyed. But unlike the liberators, they had no good basis for this belief. Their ruler had shown no signs of maliciousness or malintent. But like the liberators, their rebellion did not live up to its promises. Instead, it had devastating consequences. So the rebellion we're considering today is known simply as the fall. The fall. This is when God's good creation plunged into a curse stemming from a single act of disobedience, a single act of rebellion against God. Now there are different movements to this story, but I think it's going to be beneficial for us to read the entire chapter, all of Genesis 3, straight through so we can see how the story advances. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. I believe that's going to be on page 2 or 3. It's going to be right at the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In your pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flying sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. The main point of chapter 3, and I pray the main point of this sermon, is that we must recognize that sin is subtle, dangerous, and tragic, but also that it cannot dethrone God. We must recognize that sin is subtle, dangerous, and tragic, but also that it cannot dethrone God. It cannot dethrone God's control, cannot dethrone God's plan, cannot dethrone God's mercy. God proves that point of Genesis 3 
here and throughout the rest of the Bible. But even at the first sin of humanity, it's evident. Hopefully in reading the chapter, you could see some of the different scenes in the story, how it progresses. And then at two points this morning, we'll correspond to the two main movements of the chapter. From verses 1 and 7, we'll see how sin happens. From verses 8 to 24, we're going to see how God handles sin. How sin happens, how God handles sin. But before we get really into the main course meal of this chapter, we want to set the table kind of by reminding ourselves where we've been, noticing some things that are, help us consume this chapter that's in front of us. So last week, we began our study in Genesis. Looked at the account of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and we saw God's glory in the goodness of his creation. And we saw how the apex of creation is human beings created in God's image, created male and female. You observe how chapter 1 of Genesis shows us some things about who God is, reveals to us about who God is. For example, it shows that God is at the forefront. It shows that God is self-existent. It shows that God speaks in power and in revelation. It shows that he is both one and complex shows that God is judged, that God is uniquely glorified in his image bearers. That's chapter 1. And in chapter 2, shows us something about what God has given us, his people. For example, God has given us life. God's given us value and mission. He's given us companionship. And he's given us peace. Peace. That's really where we ended things last week. End of chapter 1, God sees everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. The end of chapter 2, man and woman are one flesh, and they were both naked, and they were not ashamed. The end of everything, we're left in peace. But Genesis 3 is called the fall. It's the story of how everything good fell into bad. In verse 1, there's a new character, the serpent. And God's curse on the serpent, and the Bible's later discussion about this event confirms that the power behind this serpent is Satan. The Bible calls him the serpent of old, who was a liar from the beginning. That word Satan, it literally means adversary. The serpent, verse 1 says, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent was made. Satan was made in God's heavenly creation. Satan is not eternal. And notice too, if if everything that God made is good, if everything God made is good, then something had to have happened before Genesis 3. Between the the end of Genesis 1 and 2 and the beginning of Genesis 3, Satan must have fallen and rebelled against God sometime between the completion of creation and the beginning of chapter 3. So you get clues of that in other places in Scripture. Talk about Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. You talk about wicked kings, and the power behind those kings is Satan, and it describes Satan's origins. Satan is a part of God's heavenly creation who came to rebel against God, bringing other angels with him. 
So we talk more and more about who Satan is, what he, what he does, his activity in the world right now, his fate later. But to kind of set the table for Genesis 3, that's what you need to know. Satan fell and now enters God's world to bring harm to God's creatures and to oppose God's good creation. So how sin happens? The first point. When you think of temptation, what do you think of? Maybe you think of that familiar cartoon character scene. You got a, a close-up on kind of the upper portrait of a cartoon character, and that character is deliberating on a choice he needs to make. He can either do this or do that. And as, he, as he's thinking, there are two other characters that appear. And you got one on one shoulder. There's a little mini devil. And it takes time. devil talks to him. He talks back. But then on his other shoulder is a little mini angel. This is kind of the process of temptation that's portrayed by cartoons and Looney Tunes. Now, we can point everything that's wrong in this depiction, but I think one thing it does uh, is that it can keep us from dissecting and examining and looking closely at how temptation actually works. How temptation actually works. You see, uh, Satan comes to the woman, and he wants to entice her to do something. But how does he do it? How exactly does Satan do that? Eve's going to later say that Satan deceived her, but how does Satan deceive her? And my friends, that's important for us to recognize. It's important for us to find that out, to examine that, because the methods of Satan, the methods of sin, the methods of the world, described here, described throughout the Bible, those are the same methods that entrap us in sin today. So it's important for us to know that so that we may avoid temptation and avoid sin. Verse 1 says, Satan is crafty, and he crafts a plan to entice Eve to disobey the Lord who had made her. Notice the first four words he says to Eve. First four words. Did God actually say did God actually say very first thing Satan does very first thing is slander and question and undermine God's word did God actually say you know what he's doing he's sowing little seeds of doubt in Eve's mind about the goodness, the truthfulness, and the actual content of God's word. Did God actually say? He continues, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. No, Satan, he didn't say that. It's clear as day that he didn't see that. You look back at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. What does God tell Adam there? You may surely eat of Every tree of the garden. Ding, ding, ding. Direct contradiction. Satan saying, you can't eat of anything. That's what God's told you. But God goes on, verse 16 and 17, chapter 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. 
There are plenty of followed in Satan's footsteps. Asking, did God actually say? Plenty who followed in his footsteps. They ask this question about issues that are clear as day in the Bible. About lifestyles that are clear as day in the Bible. You talk about slavery. You talk about abortion. You talk about same-sex relationships. When you have to do some serious acrobats to justify your decision, be careful. When it goes against what God directly says, and you have to ask, well, did God actually say that? Be careful. So can you see how this is enticing, though? Maybe you have a hard time. Satan actually appears sincere. He's having a theological discussion. He's not avoiding God. He wants to talk to Eve about God, about what God says. So Eve, let's go and have a Bible study together. Did, did God actually say this? Wouldn't you want to know what God actually says? Wouldn't you want to know God's plan for your life? What's more is that Satan comes across as the good guy. And he wants God to come across as the bad guy. He wants Eve to see God as more restrictive and more harsh than he actually is. God doesn't want you to eat from any tree. He wants Eve to focus on God's prohibition rather than God's provision. He wants Eve to focus on God's prohibition rather than God's provision. He wants her to focus on the one, good, one thing that God has prohibited them from instead of everything that God has provided for them. That's a lesson for us. When we forget God's goodness and we forget God's goodness toward us, most profoundly, when we forget the gospel that God did not spare his own son, then we will have nothing left to focus on but what God hasn't given us and what God has supposedly kept from us. And you see, you see how that can stir some animosity in our hearts toward God when all we're focusing on is what he's prohibited instead of what he's provided? You see how that can make us a little bit discontent with the Lord, a little bit angry at the Lord? We become like melodramatic teenagers who hate hearing the word no. No, you cannot have a face tattoo. No, you cannot stay out past 11. No, you cannot get the new iPhone. And every time they hear the word no, they scream, you're ruining my life. All they can see is what their parents are keeping them from. And we've all been there. Instead of seeing the goodness in their parents, even the goodness in their parents and keeping them from that thing. So careful, friends. Talking about how sin happens. Careful of forgetting God's provision, of forgetting God's goodness, and focusing on the wrong thing. But Eve allows herself to go along with Satan's game. She corrects Satan and affirms what God said earlier, that they could eat of any tree. Her knowledge of that, just thinking about that, well, we can eat of any tree. Hold on a second. God's given me all this, 
God's given me and my husband all of this, all this garden. He's given us paradise. And you want me to focus on one little tree? Why would I do that? Now she continues. She adds to what God said. God said nothing about touching the tree. He fall, she falls into the serpent's game. You know, the serpent made God out to be stricter than he actually is. He made God out to be restricting their life. This is what Eve does in her perspective. So when we see God as restricting our life, oh, it's easy to have animosity toward him. It's easy to, to desire things that are contrary to him. When we see God as restricting us, so careful, friends. Satan responds again in verse 4. But this time, it's flat-out denial. What does he say? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. One commentator points out that the first truth in Scripture to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. First truth in Scripture to be denied. How many have followed in those footsteps? Scripture again and again confirms God's holiness and that God must judge sin. Even Jesus confirms that. But Satan's crafty. Satan's crafty. He's making God to be power hungry, to be insecure, to be a malicious being. And Satan purports that by obeying what God says, by obeying what God says, Adam and Eve will keep themselves from becoming fully human, from becoming who they were made to be. By obeying what God says, they will be kept from that. Oh, listen, that's illogical. And the same, the same lies are fed today. We convince ourselves that if, if we truly believe and seek to obey God's word, then we're just going to be joyless saps who really miss out on what's good in life. Don't believe that. The thing was, this was exactly against what God had said. They'll become like God. They'll get more power. They'll get more freedom. Didn't Satan know? Didn't Adam and Eve know? They were already made in the image of God. They were already like God. They're not going to get more like God by disobeying God. They're not going to trick him into getting more power. They're already made like God. Don't forget what God's given you. God wasn't keeping Adam and Eve from a good thing. He was keeping them for himself. He is the ultimate good thing. Friends, if you want to know the starting point of avoiding sin, the starting point of avoiding sin and temptation, it's clinging to God and delighting in Him, in who He actually is, that He's not the restrictor of life. He's the giver of life. He is the supreme good in whom there is no lie and no deceit. And friends, if you delight in the Lord, then you're going to delight in the goodness of obeying him. 
Eve comes to the tipping point of temptation and has to decide between God's word and Satan's word. Between God's word and Satan's word. Just hold on for a second. The choice should be obvious. Talk about God and Satan. But when you doubt God's word, when you doubt its goodness, when you doubt its truthfulness, when you, doubt, when you forget who God is, well, that choice becomes a little bit more cloudy, doesn't it? When you linger in temptation, it will appear all the more sweet. Brothers and sisters, let me exhort you. Develop the discipline. Develop the discipline of cutting off temptation when you first see it. Cutting off temptation when you first see it. If you linger, it's going to appear all the more sweet. That's what Eve does here. She lingers in temptation. Eve had listened to Satan long enough that in verse 6, she could look at the fruit and begin to see all the lies that Satan said. She can begin to see the glimmer that lays on the exterior of the fruit. But you know what she can't see? She can't see the poison that hides inside of the fruit. That's like every sin. Satan hides the consequences and makes the sin look attractive. And she convinces herself that eating this fruit will give her and Adam the freedom that they don't have. But obeying God is their freedom. Obeying God is their freedom. Think about a fish. What happens when you catch a fish and it comes out of the water? You know what happens? It flops around. It's, it's begging for life. The fish doesn't gain freedom by escaping the water. Escaping the water brings death. So with us, we don't gain freedom by disobeying God. We gain freedom by obeying God. It's the water in which we were made to swim. So careful, friends, of lingering in temptation. Of lingering there long enough that you begin to see what's actually bad as, as good and what's good as, as being bad. Eve believes the lie. She takes and eats the fruit. And then she gives some to her husband. Adam seems to have been there the entire time, just silent. He capitulated his responsibility for the one he was charged to protect, for the one who he called the bone of his bones and the flesh of his flesh. Adam capitulated here. There's no recorded questioning. He just took the fruit and ate. No questions asked. I'm not sure if you've realized this. I've ever thought about this. Sin is easy. Sin is easy. Think about it here. This is just a simple act. All it took was biting into a fruit. Sin is easy. Even, even in a perfect environment. Talk about a perfect creation. And, and Adam and Eve don't even have a corrupted mind. Sin is easy. That's what the rest of Scripture confirms. Think about Moses striking the rock and disobeying God. That was easy. 
Think about David committing adultery with Bathsheba. That was easy. It happened quickly. It was simple. Think about Judas betraying Jesus. That was easy. How many times can you reflect, can we reflect on our sin and think, boy, did that happen quickly. Boy, was that really easy to fall into. Sin's easy. So friends, the easiness of sin makes it all the more dangerous and tells us of the importance of being vigilant against it. We're going to see that more next week. Being vigilant against sin. What happens next? Satan's predictions come true. At least in part. Satan promised that their eyes would be opened. What does verse 7 say? That their eyes were opened. Not for their good. Immediately, Adam and Eve's relationship with one another is severed. What was, now in it, what was once innocent delight is now guilt and shame. You see this today, we see this time and time again. Remember, friends, sin does not keep its promises. Sin does not make good on its promises. It promises power. It promises freedom. It promises satisfaction. But actually, it brings weakness. It brings bondage. And it brings disappointment. Sin does not make good on its promises. So friends, this is the nature of temptation and sin. And that's just here. And we could say so much more about it. We see that temptation to disobey God comes when we doubt the goodness and truthfulness of God and his word. It comes when we lose focus on everything that God's given us. It comes when we consider how it will grant us our selfish desires. But... Sin and temptation leave us empty and it fails to make good on its promises. So I wanted to take our time in outlining the dynamics of temptation because that's a key part of living the Christian life. While we've been saved from sin through Christ's death and resurrection in our place, we are not yet without sin. We prayed earlier. Anyone who says he is without sin deceives himself. Don't deceive yourself. You need to know how temptation works. Sin is still enticing. Sin still drags us away from God. But the story doesn't end here. How does God handle sin? The first act of rebellion from humans of their conspiracy to dethrone God and elevate themselves. How does God handle it? Well, he does three main things. He, he confronts it, he judges it, and he shows mercy. How does God handle sin? He confronts, he judges, and he shows mercy. He confronts it. Look at verse 8. There we find God walking in the garden. His image bearers have abandoned him. His image bearers have abandoned him. He hasn't abandoned them. God did not seek us while we were lovely. 
The Bible says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's walking in the garden, and he hasn't abandoned his image bearers. But just as Adam and Eve's relationship with one another was severed, so their relationship with God was severed. They hid themselves. This paragraph, we see God confronting sin by drawing out Adam and Eve with questions. Of course he knows where they are. Of course he knows what they've done. He wants them to get to confess their sin, to see what they've done, to see the gravity of what they've done. So he confronts Adam first, the one who had the most responsibility. Where are you, he asks. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of that tree? He asks Eve, what is it that you've done? You see, when Adam and Eve answer, they're preoccupied with skirting responsibility and blaming others. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Friend, if your inclination is to avoid God, perhaps it's because you have not owned up to your sin. If your inclination is to avoid God, perhaps it's because you have not owned up to your sin. That's what happens here. So pray that God would search you and help you be honest about the state of your heart. We must see that by going our own way, we have rebelled against God. The God to whom we're accountable, the God to whom we, who made us. So we must confess our sin as sinful. This is godly sorrow the Bible talks about. And confession hurts. Confession hurts. It's like removing a disease. There's going to be some pain. But that's the first step towards healing. Confession. So friends, feel burdened to say this. Um, if you're concealing some kind of, of hidden sin today, God wants to draw you out toward him. Consider that it is mercy that you are here this morning. God confronts sin, and that's for our good. In Christ, he has made a way for the forgiveness of our sins, and he has made a way to give us grace to repent of our sins. But we must confess our sins. God doesn't just confront, he judges. He judges sin. After seeking to draw out Adam and Eve, God pronounces a series of curses that affect Satan, the woman, Adam, and the world in which they live. Notice that despite the attempted rebellion, there's never a moment when God loses control. There's never a moment when he's off his throne. God does not lose power here. So beginning with the serpent, God doesn't question the serpent. God doesn't question him. He addresses him. He pronounces immediately that the serpent slithering has now the significance of its curse among all creation. That crawling in the dust shows his defeat, his humiliation. But it's not just the serpent God curses. God curses the power behind the serpent. Look at verse 15. Satan has the offspring of ongoing rebellion against God. And that offspring will have an ongoing conflict with the woman's offspring, those who love God. 
The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. It's going to be seen in the rest of the Bible. The offspring, that word, can refer both to a group collectively and to an individual. We see it's an individual in the second part of that verse. An individual serpent whose head will be bruised or crushed. And it will be crushed by an individual seed of the woman. Friends, there's a reason why this verse called, is called the first telling of the gospel. Because here, God prophesies his plan of victory over Satan. But crushing Satan will not come without struggle. An offspring's heel will be bruised. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah will be crushed for our iniquities. That he will be pierced for our transgressions. That by his wounds we are healed and we have victory. In the judgment for our rebellion, there is hope for life. So verse 15 is like a pause button. I'm going to give curses pause. Here's some hope. Press play again. <laughs> Rest of the curses. Got a curse on Adam and Eve involve pain and bondage. That's verses 16 and 19. They show how the effects of sin are felt in all areas of life. Got childbearing, work, how they relate to one another in marriage, how God designed Adam and Eve to be complements and Adam to take the lead, but now that's distorted and sin affects it, and ultimately how sin affects the area of death, of life itself. These show us a couple of doctrines that Christians hold to, have held to historically. Shows us the doctrine of human depravity, that sin is pervasive, that it affects all people, that people are Dead in sin, the Bible says. That people are slaves to sin and do not desire God. The curses of Adam and Eve, the effects of their sin, don't just show human depravity. They show the doctrine of original sin. Adam and Eve are going to pass on the guilt and corruption of their sin. This is because Adam acts as the representative head of all his descendants even in his choice to disobey God. There's a hint of that in that phrase in verse 17. God said, curse is the ground. Why? Because of you. It's original sin. We read that earlier, Romans 5. Adam acts as our representative head. So this means that as Genesis goes on, rest of the Bible goes on, that things are going to get worse before they get better. Friends, God is holy and therefore he judges sin. He confronts it, he judges it. If you don't get this, if you don't get that God judges sin, then you can't get God's mercy and you can't get the cross and you can't get the gospel. So how, the, how does God handle sin? He confronts it, he judges it, he shows mercy. Narrative of the fall comes to a close. After the fall, there's fallout. And there remains hints of God's mercy sprinkled throughout. Verse 20. Adam appears to understand the hope of God's mercy that though Eve will have pain and childbearing, that though they will die, 
It is through a child that God will bring life. Verse 21, there's hints of mercy. Adam and Eve could not deal with their shame in making clothing for themselves out of fig leaves. But there's a hint of mercy that that God, through a sacrifice, provides a way for them to be restored to one another and for them to be restored to himself. Provides a sacrifice to do that. In verses 22 to 24, there's a hint of mercy here. Sure, there's the fallout of God banishing Adam and Eve from the special place of his presence. But his temple must be clean. He cannot dwell with sin. But there's also the mercy here that they will not be left to live in their sinful state forever. I like to be strategic about the order in which I eat my food at a meal. Uh, you know, some people, some people they're, they're different food. They, they can't touch on their plates. Uh, working back in the hall, I know uh, catering workers can testify to that. Um, I respect that. Some people only eat one food at a time. I'm not quite that way. I prioritize balance. I want the taste in my mouth to be balanced and balanced out well, to complement one another well. So that means at the end of the meal, I want to be left with a good taste. If I got a good taste in my mouth, someone offers me a dessert, so no, I'm fine. I want to keep this good taste in my mouth. <laughs> What's the lasting taste from Genesis 3? There's a lot of bad news here. This is called the fall, the fall. It tastes bitter. All this talk about sin and how we're affected by it, how we are under Adam and, and receive his guilt and his nature. And that bad news, that, that bitter taste, only enhances the flavor of the good news. It makes it all the more sweet. Good news that God's that God still has mercy. And the good news is that there's a second Adam. There's an old preacher who told the story of four men scaling the most difficult phase of one of the highest summits in the Alps, the Matterhorn. There was a guide, a tourist, a second guide, and a second tourist. And they were all connected. They were all roped together, scaling the most difficult phase And as they were trekking, the second tourist lost his footing and lost his grip of the mountain. He's now dangling off the side. The pull of the rope caused the second tourist to lose his grip and to dangle off the edge of the cliff. And this caused the third man to lose his grip. And now we got three men dangling over the cliff. But the guide who was in the lead, the guide who was in the lead, when he felt that first pull of the rope, he drove his axe into the ice, braced himself, and held fast. Which caused the first tourist to regain his footing. The second guide to regain his footing. The second tourist to regain his footing. And they're all safe. When Adam sinned and lost his footing, he pulled the next man after him, and the next after him, 
and the next after him until the whole of the human race was dangling over the side of the cliff in peril. But the second Adam, the second Adam kept his footing. Even in the midst of a fallen environment, not even a perfect environment, even in the midst of a wilderness, even before a cross, Jesus held fast. And those united to him by faith regained the path. They regained their footing. Their sins are forgiven. And Christ's obedience becomes their obedience. And their sinful natures are transformed. So you look at Genesis 3. And you need to recognize, we need to recognize, the reality and depths of sin. But let that drive us to a greater view of God's holiness, of God's control, of God's plan, and God's mercy in Christ, the second Adam. And it's because of him, friends, that that action of of taking and eating the fruit, which once symbolized our damnation, that action, take and eat, now symbolizes our salvation. That we take and eat the bread and the cup that was broken for us, that was spilled for us. That's the second Adam. Let's pray. Lord, teach us the sinfulness of sin. Show us how crafty our hearts are. Help us to cut sin off at its root. To show that sin does not lead to our good. That sin does not lead to our freedom. It leads to our bondage. Help us to be clear-headed in that. We see the danger and the effects of sin. We're humbled. And we need to acknowledge that you confront sin, that you judge sin. But God, you are merciful in the sight of sin. We thank you that where we disobeyed, Christ obeyed. And that Christ is the second Adam who held fast when we slipped and fell away. And that he bore our sins not in part, but the whole. That united to him, we are restored. Through his sacrifice, we are restored back to you. So God, help us to live that way. Give us grace to cling to you and to avoid sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.